The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome to Supercomputers and Super Pups. It's a presentation of Guide Dog Users, Inc. Um, and I'm really excited about this presentation. I've heard it before. Um, I'd like to do a little housekeeping first. And is Sarah still on the panel? I hope so. Uh, yes, president. I'm here. Okay. Uh, Sarah Calhoun, president of GTI, would like to say a couple words first. Well, thank you, Maria. And welcome, everyone, to this uh, GDY presentation, uh, everyone that who's called in on the Zoom link, and everyone who's listening on the ACB media radio. And we certainly uh, are excited to get into this presentation. Uh, if you are interested in becoming a member or learning more about Guide Dog Users, Inc., uh, the membership is $15 a year. We also have state affiliates that you can check on our website at gdui.org. And you can, if you are, live in one of the states that is affiliated with GDY, you can join through them or you can join uh, online or you can call our office manager, Lynn Merrill, at 866 799 uh, you can also get a list of our state affiliates on our website as well, or Lynn Merrill can help you uh, to, to get that information. Um, some of the great benefits we have is our advocacy group committee and helping assist those with our access rights, uh, our laws, um, uh, ADA guidelines our transportation, and just a whole realm of uh, advocacy issues that uh, people might uh, come up against and need assistance. We have a disaster assistance preparedness program where we offer some financial assistance for working teams that have uh, experienced a catastrophe, such as maybe a fire, flooding, hurricane, etc. And uh, we have several other great committee special concerns. We have our programs. So uh, please, if you are interested in learning more about GDUI, please visit our website at gdui.org. Thank you all so much and enjoy the convention. Thank you, Sarah. And I hope people remember that phone number and our website, gdi.org, because my first two announcements, you can access uh, the information uh, through uh, both uh, contact points. Uh, first one is that three of our GDUI products um, are on the convention special here that we're um, offering to sell them at a $5 discount. And those products are the Accessible Safety Beacon, which I think is just so fabulous. Um, the Harness Pouch, where you can uh, attach this to your dog's harness and include like 
pickup bags and maybe a key, a credit card, uh, access laws, et cetera. And the third item is the harness sign where you're asking people not to pet your dog. So those are on sale uh, until uh, right through the guide dog portion of the ACB convention. So right through Wednesday, Octo- uh, Wednesday October, geez, uh, I hope the convention isn't that long, through Wednesday, July 6th. The second item real quick is the drawing. You have less than two weeks now to purchase tickets. We have four plush puppies in uh, with custom uh, handmade leather harnesses uh, that uh, we're uh, offering. Um, the tickets are three for five or seven for 10. They're four pups. We have Rascal, the Yellow Lab, Coco, the Chocolate Lab, Banner, the German Shepherd, and Bella the golden retriever um the those tickets are on sale until 12 o'clock noon central time wednesday july 6 and the drawing of the winners will occur uh later that afternoon at our wrap-up session which is 5 30 central time um so you know the, the puppies you can buy uh, uh, tickets, drawing tickets for more than one of the pups. Uh, the third thing, real quick, is the door prize winners for this session. Uh, we are, have four door prizes here. They are scrubby, instant uh, um, bathing mitts. You get five in a package. It's a great product. Um, so the winners... For this session, our Judy Cannon. Oh, this name's familiar. Sarah Calhoun, Sandra Rukinich, and Sandra Burgess. You don't have to be present here. We will mail um, the door prizes to you. And with that, it's time to hear about supercomputers and super pups. And I'm turning this over to our facilitator, Carl Richardson, who is the president of the Massachusetts Affiliate. And before, Carl, before you begin, just an attendance update that our other two panelists are here now. Thank you very much for your help. Sure. So, welcome everybody. I'm very excited to talk about this for a number of reasons. One, it combines two of my loves, tech and dogs. And, mm-hmm. and, and, this, and this program is a program where they guide and I, IBM and North Carolina State University have joined forces to try to figure out how to use artificial intelligence, Watson the supercomputer at IBM and, and North Carolina's State University research facility to figure out how to make better guide dog teams. And this application can potentially be used across the service animal sector at large. So we're very excited. Before we start, I want to introduce everybody properly, but I've been doing so many panels lately that I was having a hard time remembering everybody's information. So I had someone voice. I had someone record the intro, and I think you'll recognize his voice. So, Gerald, if you could play the intro. Thank you. Here's a brief bio of all the panelists presenting today, read by Roy Samuelson, founder of the ADNA.org. Lorraine Trapani is an executive program manager in IBM's Government and Regulatory Affairs, GRA, organization. 
Lorraine's passion project for IBM is a cognitive working dog solution, a collaboration between Guiding Eyes for the Blind, North Carolina State University, and IBM to pair more dogs with those who need them. This project brings together the Internet of Things, IoT, through a smart collar, which captures biometric, environmental, and emotional response data, IBM's hybrid cloud, and IBM Watson's advanced analytics and machine learning. Lorraine also volunteers with Guiding Eyes for the Blind as a puppy raiser. Lorraine has raised seven puppies for Guiding Eyes for the Blind. Jane Russenberger recently retired to focus her 37 years' experience in breeding, genetics, and behavior as a volunteer helping guide and service dog organizations across the world produce and raise high-quality dogs for the people they serve. Current projects include continuing management support of research projects at Guiding Eyes for the Blind, including the Smart Collar Project, development and support of an international working dog database called IWDR, certification for globally used behavior scoring system, and development of open access online educational materials on www.iwdr.org. Albert Boskert is a professor of electrical and computer engineering at North Carolina State University. He received his Ph.D. degree from Cornell University in 2010. His research expertise is on electronic interfaces for connecting biological organisms to the cloud to solve real-life engineering problems in innovative ways. His ongoing projects include insect machine interfaces with remotely controlled biobotic insects for exploration and mapping after natural disasters, canine machine interfaces to enable a computer-assisted canine training system and remotely interact with canines, plant machine interfaces to record biopotentials and impedances on crops and trees to monitor their stress response, and muscle computer interfaces for underwater pollution and bivalve health assessment. His recent achievements on these topics were covered by international media, including BBC, CNN, National Geographic, Discovery Channel, and Reuters, where his team was included in Popular Science Magazine's Brilliant Ten list. His studies and team also received numerous awards from the government and industry, including the U.S. National Science Foundation Career Award, IBM Faculty Award, Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, IEEE, Young Professional Award, and Best Conference Paper Awards from the U.S. Government Microcircuit Applications and Critical Technology Conference, IEEE Sensors Conference, and IEEE Body Sensor Network Conference. Dr. Boskert has close to 12 years of collaboration history with Dr. Roberts on wearable technologies for dogs. David L. Roberts received the B.A. in Computer Science and Mathematics from Colgate University in 2003 and the Ph.D. in Computer Science from the College of Computing, Georgia Institute of Technology in 2010. He is an Associate Professor of Computer Science, Associate Director of Undergraduate Programs, and Interim Director of the Digital Games Research Center at North Carolina State University. His research interests lie at the intersection of machine learning, social and behavioral psychology, and animal-computer interaction. He has a particular focus on computation as a tool to provide insight into human and non-human animal behavior in digital and real-world environments. He received the Georgia Tech President's Fellowship and Student Research Excellence Commendation, multiple IBM Faculty Awards, Best Paper Awards and nomination at international conferences, including Interactive Digital Storytelling, SIGCHI, Robot and Human Communication, Computational Intelligence in Games, and the Association for the Advancements of Artificial Intelligence. He has also co-founded two startup companies, commercializing non-human animal-computer interaction technologies, is a member of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, and the Association for Computing Machinery. Dr. Roberts has worked collaboratively with Dr. Bozcard for more than a decade on the design of hardware, software, and analytics for measuring, characterizing, and predicting canine temperament and behavior. Gerald Brennickmeyer. Since joining Guiding Eyes in 1997, Gerald Brennickmeyer has had the opportunity to grow in the training department. 
Soon after becoming a qualified guide dog mobility instructor, Gerald moved into the position of training supervisor, where his love for training guide dogs and working with students was clear. In 2014, he became the director of canine program development and oversaw both the puppy program and guide dog mobility instructor training. Now, fully immersed solely in the puppy program, he is working closely with the training department to ensure the best dogs are ready for the challenge of becoming a guide. Back to you, Carl. Oh, I, first of all, that was Roy Samuelson. And for those of you who don't know, he's a narrator of audio description of film, television, and streaming <laughs> services. And you'll hear his voice often if you pay attention to the audio description. And he did this as a favor to the Guide Dog Users, Inc. So I want to thank Roy. As you can see, there was quite a bit of stuff there, which is why I was worried about memorizing it all. So... What I thought we would do in terms of the presentation, and there will be a flow to each panelist. We're going to start with Lorraine. And Lorraine not only worked for IBM and, and helped facilitate this collaboration between all the stakeholders, her claim to fame, her most important claim to fame, is she's mm -hmm. my puppy raiser for my third guide dog, Merrick, who's 11 years old and still working. And, then, and the reason why we're going to start with Lorraine, because she worked at IBM and she helped form this collaboration. Then we're going to go to Jane Rustenberger, who was formerly a guide, and I talk about what they hope to get out of this program when they were in the initial phases of coming up with the concept of this program. Then we're going to go to Alpa, who designed the hardware for this program. And then we'll go to David, who came up with the software and how to get the analytics out of this program. And then we'll go to Gerald, who will talk about what they're doing with the data and how they're actually starting to use colors on puppy raising teams as we speak today. So that, that'll be the flow. And we're going to start with Lorraine. So Lorraine, why don't you talk about how this program initially started? Well, thank you, Carl, for the introduction. And Carl is absolutely correct. Um, my biggest claim to fame and, and the most emotional one I can think of is that I had the privilege of volunteering with Guiding Eyes for the Blind as a puppy raiser and raising Merrick. And I always tell Carl that Merrick actually saved my life before he saved his. I, I became involved with Guiding Eyes for the Blind after losing my husband, who had partially lost his vision in a surgery that diagnosed pancreatic cancer. And after a while of being alone, I realized how lonely I was. And I was thinking of getting a puppy. And someone had been to a graduation at Guiding Eyes for the Blind and asked me to go with her and to consider raising a puppy for them. And going to the graduation, I realized that that was just something that I, I needed to do. And I'm, and I'm very glad that I did. I, I have to be honest, when Merrick was ready to leave me and go in for training, I prayed that he would flunk out <laughs> and come home to me. But um, now I'm very glad that he did graduate as a guide dog to Carl. And Carl and I have developed a tremendous friendship and I'm very grateful that Carl allows me to stay in Merrick's life, even bringing, me, bringing him to visit me on his 10th birthday. Every puppy that I've raised for Guiding Eyes for the Blind, the morning that I'm taking them back to Guiding Eyes to go in for training, Carl has called me to thank me on behalf of the person who would eventually get the dog that I had raised. And, and that's a, a a wonderful gift and a testament to the kind of clients that Guiding Eyes for the Blind has. I would say that Merrick was the first puppy that I raised and he succeeded. The second puppy that I raised was a half brother to Merrick 
And he made it through training. He was assigned to a person. And the day before graduation, Guiding Eyes decided that the stress of guide work was too much for him, and he was released. And the third puppy that I raised also didn't become a guide dog. So when I heard that Jane Russenberger was offering a talk on the work that she was doing to increase the success rate of dogs that that went through the program and became guide dogs, I went to the talk because I was very interested in making sure that the next puppy I raised was successful. And I had never met Jane, but sitting and listening to her talk with such passion and dedication to making sure that there were more guide dogs available for people that needed them, won me over in a heartbeat. And I felt that there had to be more that I could do to help. At that time, Watson, uh, there was a free version of Watson, the supercomputer available. And as I sat there listening, I thought, and she talked about all the data that Guiding Eyes has been collecting on all the dogs for a number of years. I thought that that would be a perfect avenue for Watson's analytics to help give Jane some insights into successful dogs. And so after the the talk, I stayed and Jane and I talked and and it turned into the project that you're now going to hear about. But I would tell you that you couldn't have a more dedicated, passionate team of people working to make sure that there are more guide dogs available to you. So thank you, Carl. Okay, Jane, why don't you talk about how the program went to the next level when Lorraine and you got involved? Thank you, Carl. Um, Lorraine and I, uh, I just can't express enough how much I am so grateful for her reaching out and making all this possible and meeting up with the team at North Carolina State University to do a project that is beyond my wildest dreams. Um, it is on the just the leading edge of all aspects of technology. And so we struggled, uh, as every school is, to do the very best we can. Healthy dogs, confident, <coughs> calm with stress, good with other dogs, low distraction. And the biggest reason for failure, as Lorraine explained for uh, her first dog, um, uh, for, the, for the first dog that was released, was he got stressed out uh, making yeah, decisions. Yeah, I was about to call you out on her first dog. <laughs> yeah, first dog release. <laughs> Still working. Thank you. <laughs> and um, so, you know, related to stress and also um, the other one is like the dogs that have a problem with environmental uh, fears, like noises, traffic, stairs, or whatever, or even combinations of all that. So we want to make as many successful dogs as possible. And we've been using data, as Lorraine said. Um, but what if uh, we could do something better? So Lorraine had told me about Watson, but not that um, difference in time. It was almost like it, well, it was meant to be. I had read an article, a paper, a scientific paper by Dr. Barbara Sherman, uh, who's a, a behaviorist. And she was uh, based in North Carolina State University running the veterinary behavior program. And she was lead author on a paper that talked about uh, detection dogs and how they were um, getting measures of stress. And I was just so taken by the paper. I was uh, really wanting to talk more and made a visit down there. And that's when I met Dr. Roberts as well. And Dr. Boskert wasn't available that day, but... Um, we, we had a chance to meet later and get um, 
all this whole project together when Lorraine and I uh, decided that there really was an opportunity and approached uh, some of the management of IBM who really liked the project and the idea. So we did it down in North Carolina where they're based in the Triangle um, and met up with the North Carolina group. And I was so thrilled. I was jumping up and down literally when when they said we could do the project. So what did we want to try to accomplish? Um, we really wanted to try to have more accuracy in um, be able to know which dogs actually are really poor candidates. Because when you invest in a puppy raiser uh, who's giving so much of their time and love for a whole year, and then all the guide dog training, the cost, the engagement of the instructor, and just as happened to Lorraine's first dog, even potentially a, a person that gets started with a dog and it just can't deal with the real thing, um, or worse yet, that a dog gets out there and can't deal with it once it gets out, which every school tries never to make that happen. So if we could do something to identify those dogs with uh, reasonable accuracy, uh, or at least the, the least desire, um, likely candidates, that would be really amazing. Um, and we also want to understand what are the, I kind of call it the secret sauce of a puppy raiser uh, who can take a dog who uh, is just a young puppy, seems like a good candidate. And some people as raisers, they make it and other people, they don't make it. And sometimes it's a health problem or something way beyond um, but there's something that certain people are able to do. And it, we believe from the work that's been done, it has to do with frequency and variety of socialization. So what if there was a device the puppies could wear that could uh, move about? And that's what I got out of that paper is they, they were able to like see reactions to stress and maybe there was more that could be done. Um, and then the other would be the how does the dog change over time? Because clearly the puppies we put out in our puppy raising program look like they're going to be okay. They look uh, like good candidates, but not always do they turn out that way. Is it genetics, environment? And what is it that we could learn that could help us to make a difference? And then we added some icing to the cake of our project in that we, we've had such a hard time getting walking speed data the trainers would have to have a little GPS and measure it, and they'd have to do it many times in order to get it, and it's very time-consuming and a lot of noise in the data collection. But what if? What if we could actually take a young uh, dog that's like an older, mature puppy with puppy razors and have them get walking speed measures? And you get it in training multiple times. And then we use those data to say, is there any pattern in a dog who actually walks faster as a puppy? And or a dog who's uh, in training and he seems to have a difference in walking speed. Well, how can that help somebody? And Gerald will speak to the real value to it. But but you who are out there working these dogs, some people want a dog that's faster and some want one that's slower. And you want to be somewhat confident you're going to have a dog stay that way. So what if we could do that? And that's basically what we hoped and what the project suddenly became as the project was born. And thank when you, Carl. I, thank you. When you, I just have one quick question. When you went down to meet David and Alpert, did you envision that all this data would be collected on the caller? How did you envision that data would be collected before you met with them? Well, the, the, the uh, paper that I read had this um, look like a harness with a, 
I don't know, a walkie-talkie sitting on it with a big antenna. So that was my little vision of there's going to be this huge thing um, sitting on the dog's harness. And I was like, how in the world are they going to do that in a puppy razor? But maybe they can, maybe they can't. But what's, what the heck? I'll make the trip and see. And then uh, learned that Dr. Bosker can stick them on Madagascar cockroaches and, and they can crawl down into an earthquake scene. And I was like, wow, this guy is like pretty amazing. And and I I knew like from, about Watson from Jeopardy, but I didn't really <laughs> realize what IBM had this amazing, amazing program uh, and hardware. And then they had the cloud to back it up and so reliable. So you'll hear a lot more about that. But Okay, great. Yep. So why don't we go to Alper now, who can talk about how he decided to come up with the concept and the creation of the hardware and, and in what form that took shape? Yeah. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, everyone for inviting us and making this uh, possible. It's always a pleasure for us to reach out to people and talking to people in the field and users and uh, give the background story because there's a lot of uh, tears and there are a lot of sweat and a lot of uh, you have been hearing a lot of uh, personal reaching out and extra efforts. Um, I was asked to give you some uh, more technical background about uh, the details of the hardware and, um, and I was given a little extra time as well. Hopefully we'll be uh, patient about that. But uh, the uh, inspiration actually comes uh, from this wave of Internet of Things getting into every aspect of our lives. Um, whether we accept that or not, whether uh, we resist or, you know, are aware of it or not, but our devices, our environment, everything in our uh, daily life is getting into Internet. Um, and in our team, we have the vision of can we put uh, biological organisms on Internet? Like, can we have sensors around them, on them? Uh, to get them monitored and uh, get things organized more efficiently as we are getting more crowded uh, in this little planet uh, as the population is growing, we have this need for optimizing resources. And uh, one of our most important resources, what we have in the uh, natural environment, in the biological ecosystem. So, you know, as you heard earlier, we are trying to put sensor systems uh, on the plants, on insects, on dogs, on freshwater mussels, underwater creatures. Um, so that is a story of uh, custom design. So we get into every organism, look at the need, and we have the uh, know-how know -how of how to miniaturize things and how to uh, bring uh, different parts of an electronic system together, and uh, we make it work. Um, and we have been working uh, for almost uh, 12 years with Dr. Uh, Roberts, who will be talking after me. He is an a computer scientist, data analyst, is a machine learning and artificial intelligence expert, and he brings all those tools. So we not only as a team uh, generate data, need novel data, but we also uh, have novel ways to look at that data because we are generating a lot of data and it, it's really challenging to handle uh, all of those. Um, so... Um, the partnership we had with Dr. Roberts, as I said, uh, started 12 years ago, and it was uh, around different uh, dog-human interaction applications. We uh, brainstormed together. It was actually the first day we both have at NC State. We were just junior faculty. We were attending a 
new faculty orientation and we met with each other uh, and then uh, you know the just the stars aligned i believe <laughs> and a great partnership uh, was born and i will give you two example projects uh, like the papers that jane uh, was reading and these papers are uh, you know academic papers uh, that is published in the literature you can find them read them in uh, one of them uh, we wanted to uh, bring some uh, computer algorithm um, uh, augmentation in the training process between an human and dog um, we have uh, we had a vest on the dog which has an inertial measurement unit which is a sensor that looks at the motion uh, in smartphones nowadays uh, when you rotate the phone uh, screen uh, rotates or in our uh, you know fitbits on our arm there are uh, sensors that count uh, steps so it is the same sensor it is it is just a tiny mechanical sensor um, so we put a couple of how them. big is the sensor it is two millimeter by two millimeter like uh, one quarter of an inch uh, or even smaller than that uh, so it's, okay, it's quite, quite small uh, but of course we have other stuff around that like we put a radio we have batteries we have power management we have chargers it makes it a little larger, like in the size of an, uh, you know, just a Fitbit. Uh, we can we can uh, fit every in a smartwatch uh, size. We can fit everything uh, very easily. Um, so um, in one project, we said, okay, can we teach a can we let a computer or algorithm teach a dog to offer a sit behavior with playing a beep sound and. Um, we had uh, two sensors uh, on the dog, uh, one around the neck region, other uh, lower at the back. The dog is, uh, there is a uh, computer in the room, uh, wirelessly connected to this sensor. And there is a treat dispenser that is um, uh, wirelessly connected to the computer over Bluetooth. When the uh, dog is dog is walking around in the room just randomly uh, standing or walking and offers a sit behavior naturally and whenever that happens the computer recognizes the from the sensors recognizes this is a sit behavior and immediately it plays a beep sound and treats uh, uh, dispense a treat um, so the dog is walking around or standing and just gets bored sits and there is a beep sound and there is a treat and uh, if you repeat this uh, process half an hour or an hour, the dog starts to figure out, wow, when I uh, sit, there is a beep sound. So there is a relation between a beep sound and sitting behavior. And then at the end of the day, I get a treat. Uh, so uh, we were able to get this computer algorithm to, in a, you know, then when we play the beep sound, the dog basically uh, sits uh, because it expects a reward. Uh, Essentially, this is a clicker uh, training, and uh, most of you may be familiar with clicker training. And um, we just was able to op uh, automate this uh, by using sensors, a computer, and uh, algorithms. Uh, on another study, uh, we work with scent detection dogs. Uh, we put a tiny microphone on their neck region. It was like a wireless stethoscope uh, on the color and. Um, we let the machine learning algorithms to listen their body sounds while they perform their search for and detecting an uh, scent target. Um, and uh, there is this uh, beautiful choreography between their different respiratory events. Uh, they sniff, they pant, they breathe. 
But depending on whether they are still looking for the target, whether they found the target and they are tracking it or, uh, you know, they are sure that uh, they found the target and et cetera, there is this um, uh, duration and uh, the order of different uh, respiratory behaviors like sniffing, panting, and uh, breathing. And our, our and we combined heart rate detection with this and our algorithms was able to detect when they found the target. Um, by just looking at these sounds and the heart rate, the algorithm says uh, the uh, dog found the target and the uh, trainers also gives up a thumbs up, it gives us a thumbs up saying that yes, uh, it found the uh, target. So uh, this is just an, a couple of examples of uh, earlier studies that we ran um, where we have sensors on the dog and we connect it with uh, machine learning and uh, we can do things uh, in, in, in a relatively different way with the help of computers, computer algorithms, and etc. So in terms of hardware, uh, in our team, uh, we have three different suites of hardware. We have uh, health sensors, uh, which looks at the uh, respiratory rate. It looks at the heart rate. Uh, it looks at the uh, body temperature. We have behavioral sensors. Uh, you know, we have these uh, motion sensors that I mentioned. It can look at the motion of different parts of the body. And we also have uh, small microphones uh, to record um, the uh, barking behavior uh, or vocalizations. And the last one is the environmental sensor because the environment uh, the dog is in uh, is definitely going to change things. The noise level, the light level, the uh, even the ambient temperature, relative humidity, barometric pressure, we can uh, record all of those. Um, so shifting gears, uh, we have these different tool sets. We use it in our research. Six years ago, Jane and Lorraine found us, connected us uh, with IBM, and uh, we started a very exciting uh, collaboration together. Uh, in our first uh, project together, we uh, worked on adding uh, these tiny behavioral sensors or body movement sensors and heart rate sensors uh, in puppy vests when they are going through a temperament evaluation at a very young age. Um, uh, they are a couple of months old and uh, they are taken to a small uh, playground where they are, I mean, it's an uh, indoor uh, testing facility, but it looks like a playground for puppies. There are different toys, there are different sounds and visual uh, objects around and uh, their reactions are evaluated by expert evaluators. Um, and uh, the engineering challenge, uh, we were brought this environment and uh, task and uh, the engineering challenge uh, was uh, basically all our other systems were designed for adult dogs and puppies are much limited in their payload uh, capacity or weight carrying capacity. So we need to definitely, in terms of size and weight, we need to miniaturize things uh, further. And uh, in addition to these inertial measurement units or body movement sensors, uh, we also have an uh, heart rate detector. Um, it is based on electrocardiography. If you have any heart problems, if you go to your medical doctor, uh, they put these uh, sticky gel electrodes on your chest and look at the uh, heart waves. And uh, you know, if you have any hair uh, where they need to put uh, the electrodes at, they shave it, and um, uh, and these are connected to very large uh, machines. So in our research, uh, we tried to get rid of the sticky electrodes, and uh, we actually had 
some spring loaded uh, hair, uh, the hairbrush looking like tiny electrodes that can go around the hair and uh, record the uh, ECG signals. And we also had a uh, matchbox size. Uh, actually, initially it was like a deck of cards. Uh, but then uh, when we got into the puppy uh, world or puppy size, we miniaturized it uh, even uh, smaller. So the sticky electrodes are not good for puppies or uh, in general for dogs. Shaving is uh, not good. And beyond that, we were brought the challenge of uh, puppy body is very sensitive, uh, touch sensitive. So we cannot, uh, we need to be, our electrodes need to be uh, very gentle. Um, so we tried to, it was back and forth, a lot of iterations and uh, uh, it's a story of uh, being patient with the engineers <laughs> uh, to uh, get these uh, systems uh, working uh, with uh, Jane and GEB team. But eventually, we were able to get uh, really soft electrodes in small size, uh, smaller batteries, smaller circuits. And uh, now we have uh, these system being used in uh, hundreds of animals so far in the GEB facilities. And uh, we have a very uh, a good size uh, database uh, put together with the data collected and uh, Dr. Roberts is now applying his machine learning uh, techniques uh, on this uh, data. Um, Jane also brought us after this project came to an um, maturity level in terms of hardware, Jane brought us another very exciting opportunity where you know these puppies are given to razor families uh, or individuals, and um, the guide dog school has not much idea about what's going on when they are uh, with them. Uh, so they have some idea, but it is uh, all anecdotal and, uh, you know, a few data points. Um, so we were given the challenge of uh, whether we can design a color uh, that can uh, collect uh, signals uh, while the animals or the puppies are with the razors. And... Uh, the earlier system that we designed uh, for the temperament test is a harness and uh, it requires some setup time because we not we want to make sure that our heart rate sensors are working efficiently and uh, we were given that oh it's a no-go for razors they are not going to have any setup time so it should be just a simple clip onto the color and it should work uh, right away so uh, we decided to add that uh, motion sensor or movement sensor inertial measurement unit. Uh, we put a bunch of uh, environmental sensors, sound, light, temperature, humidity, barometric pressure. Uh, we put tiny microphones and uh, we put uh, uh, a GPS uh, recording uh, on this uh, system. Um, and, uh, you know, when we start testing this, it brought us a bunch of uh, new challenges uh, that we were not expecting. This is a much simpler system with respect to the harness system, but trying to run an experiment in real life in uncontrolled environment, we have Bluetooth connection in the GEB facilities or Wi-Fi connection. It works great. When we give things to the razors, things may not work as great uh, because there are walls, there are uh, you know multiple floors at home and etc. Um, and then when a system fails, then we need to now provide customer support, like people contact us, give us uh, what the problem is, and we need to offer them solutions. And uh, we had a, you know, now we are scaling up the earlier experiments with the 
term, temperament test was in a guide dog uh, school and it is a controlled environment and one dog or maybe a couple of dogs at a time. Now we are talking about uh, tens or hundreds of razors trying to collect data simultaneously. And if something goes wrong, you need to have a good customer support system. And we only have PhD students in my team. It's not a company. It's not a professional, you know, industry uh, entity. So, uh, but we were able to get all these uh, ticketing systems and uh, troubleshooting and et cetera, uh, websites, uh, app user interfaces to make sure that everything is working and meeting the uh, expectations of these particular users, uh, which is the volunteer raisers, which may not be very tech savvy. Um, and uh, we have this system ready right now. Uh, we have uh, hundreds of sensors uh, populated, uh, ready. And uh, right now we are taking these systems into a beta testing. We are using them uh, during infor training. Uh, we also uh, run some walking tests uh, to find the walking speed of the puppies as well as uh, the uh, walking style potentially. And we also ran a pilot test looking at the sleep quality of the puppy uh, in relatively more controlled environments um, uh, by just looking at the movement of the puppy while they are sleeping. And uh, they are also, we don't have a heart rate sensor immediately on this color, but we have a motion sensor. And when they are sleeping, uh, their body actually vibrate in micro uh, motions with every heartbeat. And uh, it also moves their chest and their body moves uh, uh, with every breath. Uh, so we were able to record uh, that high resolution uh, signals, uh, the heartbeats and the respiratory rate. Um, and, um, you know, and this gives us an opportunity to look at whether they are having a, uh, you know, we have these sleep sensors in our variables, like if you buy an a smartwatch, it gives you some uh, sleep tracking capability. Now we are trying to get those capability into our colors uh, to uh, give some idea about, to have some idea about their sleep quality as an indication of their uh, stress levels. So to wrap up, um, you know, we have uh, two hardware technologies. We have harnesses and colors. We have tested them in controlled environments uh, with smaller number of uh, dogs. And now our challenge is to push this into uh, larger uh, scaled up uh, environments with uh, hundreds of razors and uh, collect more and more data. Uh, with this, I'm going to let uh, Dr. Roberts talk about the uh, how we do the data magic. Um, okay, is, great. Is, Thank you. So to wrap up, you when you say... Harness and collar. You're saying a typical size collar and a typical size harness for those who can't visually, um, uh, you know, so a regular size yep. yep. collar. And yep. A, so our electronics is uh, modular, so we can fit into any uh, size. Uh, like the color is actually a color attachment. Okay. Uh, we can use any color to attach uh, those, and the harness is. Um, we use a commercial off-the-shelf uh, puppy uh, harness that is used. Uh, okay. Uh, I think that those were generally used uh, to cover the animal to have some uh, tactile force around them uh, to feel uh, less stressful, yeah. and uh, we can fit into those. Great. It's, Thank it's you. It's a modified version of the Thunder Shirt, uh, if any of you are familiar with that. 
Okay, great. Thank you, Albert. Uh, that's great. That's amazing. And and someday we'll have you come back and talk about the backpack you designed for cockroaches to go. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, um, it's Hollywood let, material. <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine how you, you know, you got into that. So next we'll go on to David, who will talk about once the hardware was designed, how they went about collecting the data and, and analyzing it. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, very um, uh, pleased to have been invited to participate uh, in this. And uh, it's a real honor to be a part of this project. It represents an amazing collaboration uh, between, I think, three really great organizations, Guiding Eyes, IBM, and, and NC State. Uh, and, you know, as academics, we often do a lot of work that lives in academia and never really makes it out into the real world. Uh, so this is an exciting opportunity for us to have real tangible impact in a really meaningful and really worthwhile space. Uh, so it's, it's extra exciting project. Aside from being really interesting scientifically, it's an extra exciting project for that uh, reason. And as Albert mentioned, uh, he and I have been working together for uh, nearly 12 years now. Uh, and this uh, project really, the, you know, the nexus of it, uh, um, maybe unofficially, really kind of started at the very beginning of Alper's and I uh, collaboration. And as he mentioned, Alper, uh, being an electrical engineer, is very focused on the hardware. Uh, me being a computer scientist with my background in statistical machine learning, I'm much more focused on the software and the data and what we can do with it. Uh, so, you know, a lot of what we have really been trying to solve here is answering a, a couple of what are appear to be fairly simple questions. Uh, but when you get down into actually trying to answer them with data, they turn out to be non-trivial. Uh, and I think the first one, the overarching question that we're really trying to answer with our data are, can we predict as early as possible in a puppy's life whether or not they're likely to be successful as guide dogs? Um, you know, as most of you are probably well aware, the vast majority of organizations that are uh, helping to breed, raise, train, uh, and place guide dogs are nonprofits. So they are working on donations and, you know, the investment that they make in the development of these puppies and their training and socialization. If that goes into a puppy that ultimately is not successful, that could be taking resources away from another puppy that could have been successful with some additional work or effort. And that's, I think, the guiding uh, principle, the guiding question that we're really trying to answer with our data is exactly that. Uh, you know, can we help identify as early as possible which are the most promising candidates to become successful guide dogs so that they can get the, the resources that are necessary in order to be successful? Uh, and I think, um, you know, Early on, Jane, uh, in one of our very first conversations, she posed a couple variants of this question to us. Um, and I think she kind of alluded to the fact that there's some percentage of the puppies in the program that uh, no matter what you do, they were just never meant to be guide dogs. I mean, they're still amazing dogs, and they may go on to become uh, have amazing careers doing other things, but they just were not meant to be a guide dog for whatever reason. There's some percentage of the puppies that no matter what you do, they're going to want to become incredible guide dogs. 
independent of their socialization. And then there's a group in the middle that's probably the largest group of the three that with the right training, with the right socialization at the right time, and the right set of experiences, will go on to become successful guide dogs. But without those things, they may not be. And so our aim is really twofold, right? So one, to identify as early as possible, which are the promising candidates. And then two, throughout this process of training and uh, socialization, can we help to identify what individual puppies may need help with in order to go on to become as successful as possible? So our data are coming in from these two systems that Alper described, the uh, harness that the puppies wear during their temperament evaluation at seven and a half weeks old, and then the collar mounted sensors that uh, are uh, collecting data from these puppies in the real world when they're living with their volunteer raisers, people like Lorraine, uh, who you heard from at the beginning of this, uh, this panel. And all of these data are then coming in through our infrastructure and IBM cloud. We have a large and ever-growing database that has all of these signals coming in that's uh, organized by puppies. Uh, and we've worked very hard to solve a lot of the usability issues to make data collection as simple as possible, while also preserving privacy. So we want to collect data about the puppies. We're not out to collect data about the razors uh, and the volunteers. Uh, and so um, to be able to accomplish that, we've actually had to make ourselves our lives a little bit harder in terms of data analysis, because there are certain data that we don't want to collect in order to preserve privacy. Uh, so Alper mentioned, just to give you a couple of examples, Alper mentioned some of the data that we collect. Um, uh, one of them is audio, right? So we have on the collar, we have the ability to collect some audio, but we don't want to be recording audio because if these volunteer raisers are uh, taking their puppies into business meetings or doctor's offices or things like that, we, we, don't, we have no interest or desire to know what they're talking about. And so we've had to put in restrictions so that you can only collect volume information, right? The decibel level that these puppies are exposed to. Uh, and similarly with GPS information, right? We don't have a GPS on the collar, but we want to know where the puppies are. And so when the collar is nearby a razor's phone, we're able to grab the GPS data from the phone. But when the phone and the puppy are in different places, we are no longer collecting GPS data because again, we're not, we're not tracking razors here. We're, we're tracking information about puppies. So all these data are, are coming into this uh, IBM cloud database. Our aim by the time we're done is to have data for a thousand puppies. Uh, we're well on our way. I think by my last count, uh, we were north of 400 uh, at the puppy temperament test uh, and are uh, then, uh, you know, uh, Puppies that are going through socialization were, uh, you know, a little bit, a couple of years behind on that from the, the timing of our development. Uh, but the data are coming in and, and they're starting to look very promising. I'll give you a few sample examples of things that we've been able to discern already. So our outcome data, obviously, uh, you know, is, is the gold standard. Can we predict success of these puppies? Uh, until we have enough puppies that have made it through the program to where we actually have the outcome data, we're not putting a lot of emphasis into that analysis because the numbers are low. Once we're done, we have data for a thousand puppies. We'll be able to uh, uh, build a much better statistical model for that. But in the interim, we've been looking at temperament. You heard Jane mention earlier on one of her projects now is on the standardization of 
uh, scoring systems for puppy temperament evaluation. So we've looked at whether or not we can use these sensor data, these objective measures, to make predictions about whether what the temperament scores for these puppies will be. Uh, one of them uh, that uh, Guiding Eyes uses that we've worked pretty extensively with is called the Behavior Checklist. And there's 39 different dimensions of temperament uh, that we are working with within the Behavior Checklist. And we've found that from the data collected during the puppy temperament evaluation, we can uh, replicate human scores with greater than 94% accuracy across these 39 dimensions. How do you uh, measure which, the 39 dimensions in a collar? Uh, so this is from the actually from the harness that the puppies are wearing at the uh, temperament evaluation. And this is where it's really fascinating. So the data that we're looking at are electrocardiograms. So we're looking at the voltage that's coming off of the puppy's heart during this structured temperament evaluation. And we segment it based on the task the puppy is performing. And so, for example, in this uh, temperament evaluation, there's a task where they go up and down a small set of like four or five stairs, they go through a tunnel, uh, they're exposed to some stimuli like an umbrella opening or a vacuum turning on. So we'll, we'll look at different segments of the data based on those tasks, and then we'll build a machine learning model. In this case, it's an artificial neural network. And uh, so the raw voltage of the heart uh, is fed into this neural network, and what comes out the other side is a prediction for what these temperament scores are across 39 dimensions. And they're scored from 1 to 5, and we're able to, with 94% accuracy, replicate for the data set that we have. Of At the time we did this analysis, it was about 230 puppies. Uh, we were able to match the human performance, or human uh, scoring with... Uh, um, uh, you know, more than 94% accuracy. Will that eventually minimize the role of the human evaluated? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, just, you got about three more minutes if you can wrap it up. David? Uh, David? That show is being unmuted. Okay, so yes, first, my first it. question uh, sorry, was, that... will that eliminate the need for human evaluators? And can you wrap this up in about three or four okay. minutes? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll assume it's now about two and a half minutes since the, okay. with the audio. But uh, but short answer is, I think um, minimize is a phenomenal way to describe it. Uh, I, I think that the role of human experts will never go away completely. But uh, what we can do with these data is reduce the dependence on those human experts. So in the case of Jane and her colleagues, they had a combined uh, I, w I know uh, more than three decades, it might even be approaching four decades at this point, experience applying these uh, temperament scores. Uh, and, you know, that level of expertise is just not widely available, uh, you know, uh, all over the place. And so a system like this will certainly make the barrier to being able to do this type of analysis much, much lower. Uh, and I think that, you know, is something that we feel very strongly about. Like the, the role of human experts is, is likely never to go away. It may change a little bit uh, in response to the technology and may make the ability to help and work with a greater number of dogs uh, more accessible, uh, but the, the humans will certainly always play a little uh, an important role uh, in, in this process. And uh, can throughout. you determine earlier on whether you think they will be a success so they can divert more resources to the dog that they think are going to make it versus the ones that might not? Can you tell that early on? 
Yeah. So uh, we certainly have some very strong indicators that we will be very successful at doing that. We do not yet have enough outcome data. So for the 400 or so puppies that we have data for, uh, we only have about 120 something that have actually completed uh, and gotten to the point where they've either been placed or excluded uh, or released. Uh, So we don't yet have enough statistical power to be able to say with confidence, but our early indicators are very positive in what we have seen so far that we'll be able to predict this as early as seven and a half weeks old, whether they will be successful or not. Oh, wow. You can tell at that age already. Yeah. I, like I said, I'm on, I'm on a caveat okay. call by saying oh, that our, our numbers are a little low. <laughs> our numbers are a little low. So we, don't, we can't say with you know, uh, sig- you know, statistical significance yet that that is the case. But our early indicators are looking very positively that we'll be so all the guy we, we just need a little more data. All the guide and ninth donors can get their puppy that are much earlier age if they don't make the program. <laughs> that is true. Yep. Um, <laughs> if this holds holds for the rest of the time. So do you have any final thoughts in 30 seconds? If not, I'll move on to uh, Gerald. Oh, many, many final thoughts, but I'll just reiterate my thanks and uh, appreciation for inviting us to share a little bit about what we're doing uh, and uh, my sincere uh, appreciation to IBM and Guiding Eyes for working with this, uh, working with us on this. It's really an, an incredible project, and we're really excited to be a part of it. So, thank you to everyone. So, now we've heard how the collaboration was formed, and then how the hardware was created, and how the software was created, and the type of data we're getting. And now we're going to hear from Gerald on how the uh, project is being actually implemented. Great. Thanks, Carl. Uh, I know we're out of time, technically, no, no. question and answers, yeah. but I, I do want to say um, the enthusiasm on this team is contagious, and everyone is working so hard to make this project work. And all this work is focused on creating better guide dogs. And so you can understand why everybody's motivation is so high and why everybody is so excited about this project. Um, and I did want to thank you all for giving us some time to talk to you about it, because Guiding Ice is really excited to be part of this because um, as you've heard we're we're implementing this collar project in a couple of different ways in all facets of our programs right so from our puppy program when the dogs are still even at our uh, canine development center are in our puppy raising community they're going to be implemented uh, when the dogs come back to the training school they're going to be implemented so we're, we're really looking at all aspects of the dog's progression through our programs to kind of get that data and see then what does it really tell us. Um, And when I say, you know, who's going to be analyzing that, that's definitely not me, Um, just (laughs) to be super clear. But uh, thank you to IBM and the NC State folks for for making this happen and making uh, making sense of all this data that we're collecting. it is really exciting idea on the puppy raiser side that they'll be able to use this collar kind of in two different ways in a passive way where they just uh, put the collar on and the collar collects the data. But they'll also have uh, the opportunity when they're doing specific socialization walks to tag different uh, parts of the walk and how the dog reacts. And again, that will give more clarity to the data as to what was happening in that situation. Um, in our infra training 
test. Uh, we call it our IFT test. It's roughly at 16 months old when the dogs come in for training. Um, they do a similar test to that puppy test, which was described earlier. Again, a lot of novel objects and sounds. And we're looking again at how does the dog react. And that test is also being coded the whole time the, the dogs are wearing the collars. Um, and then the training department is also looking at the walking speeds. Uh, that was mentioned earlier. You know, we have a lot of applicants who walk fairly fast, and we have a smaller pool of dogs that we can choose from that walk at that fast pace. So what we're seeing sometimes is longer wait times for our applicants of those faster walking dogs. Uh, in training right now, we're going to start running the tests with the collars on the dogs in training so we can figure out what their uh, natural walking speed is. But at the same time, what was also mentioned is we're looking at the gate that the dog moves out at. So when a guide dog is working, they sometimes are walking, sometimes they're pacing, and sometimes they're trotting. And they need to be able to kind of shuffle between those gates. Uh, obviously, the, the slower dogs will probably never, may not get out of a walk. They may do walk and pace combination or the you know, but the faster dogs typically do all three. So we're going to look and see if the collar can also give us that information about which dogs shift between all three gates and when do they do it. And then does that tell us anything about the dog's conformation and how they're built? Or, you know, is there big differences as a result of a dog that's very imbalanced or not imbalanced? So those are things we can look at as well. Um, so I, like I said at the beginning, I think it is just a, a, an amazingly exciting project. I think it's great that we're doing it in all facets of our uh, guide dog program here at Guiding Eyes. And, you know, as the data starts coming in, it's going to just get more and more interesting. Do you ever foresee a day in time where you will be doing that with guide dog teams as well? With guide dog what? Handlers like myself. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because you could also say even when we do uh, typically, so we do a home interview process here at Guiding Eyes and we go out and we play the role of the dog. And, you know, maybe at that point we attach, uh, we'll do a Juno walk where the, the instructor holds the harness. And uh, to time, test walking speed, maybe at that point we attach the beacon back onto the harness there during test walks with applicants um, so that we can get that data then right on the spot at the same time. So that could be a, an application as well. Okay, great. Um, you have 30 seconds to wrap up and then let's open it up to questions. That that's it. That's it for me. I do want to thank everybody on the panel here for for their roles in it. Might feel like my role is a very small part, but uh, looking forward to implementing it more into our programs. And uh, I think it's good. You know. Oh, my only other question is: How many teams currently? How many puppy raiser teams mm -hmm. currently are using it right now? Currently, we are still only doing it with the select group. We're not doing it with a large pool yet. Uh, we're working out the final kinks, but we're close to it. Okay, thank you. Um, well, Byington, I, it, it sounds to me like what this phase of the project is actually doing is establishing your baseline because you're collecting a great deal of raw data about how these dogs are reacting to various situations. It's going to give you the ability to make these uh, predictions, but I'm a little bit uh, confused about how you're getting preliminary data on what trends you're looking for within the data that actually means the dog is going to be 
successful or not successful. And if uh, one of you could talk a little bit more about how you take this data and extrapolate what is going to be a baseline of the ideal performance that you then, as this project goes on, are looking for in in making useful determinations. I hope that makes sense as a question. It does, and I'm happy to take that one uh, to start with. So um, you're absolutely correct uh, in that, uh, you know, predicting uh, success is our gold standard here. And uh, in in my world, in the machine learning world, uh, there's um, several different uh, motivations and styles for uh, the models that we build. Uh, and, you know, one of them is really kind of a black box approach where we're not uh, designing a model that will give us much of an ability to explain why a prediction is made, only to make the prediction as accurately as possible. And so, you know, our early work is really uh, just focused on that. Can we be as accurate as possible without really understanding why necessarily some puppies were predicted to be successful or not? And, you know, for example, the uh, uh, prediction of the BCL scores that I was talking about earlier, that neural network model uses raw electrocardiogram data, right, the raw voltage of the heart, and gives us a very accurate prediction. We have no idea what about the voltage of the heart and its change over time is helping that model to be predictive, only that it is very accurate. Um, to your later question, though, I think it fits very nicely into the uh, work that we're doing on the puppy socialization. And there, we're really looking at understanding environment and changes in behavior. Uh, So there, we're doing a lot of location-aware analytics. So we're looking at GPS locations to segment out the data to understand the type of environment the puppy is in, whether it be a grocery store, on public transit, in a public park, in a private residence, or even a veterinarian's office, things like that. And then looking at how their behavior in terms of vocalizations and in terms of movement changes from some normal baseline that they may exhibit in other environments. We don't yet know exactly what those um, uh, differences may be reflective of, But we need to start by understanding what we can characterize and then work with the human experts in order to try to interpret those, understand those, and figure out if those are reflective of uh, socialization or training needs that should be addressed. Does that answer your question? We have time for one more quick question. Yes, and that will be Charlene. And that will be the last question. I'm sorry, guys. Okay. Um, My question is on treat training. Uh, you mentioned it right uh, from the start as part of, of this program. Uh, I've had quite a number of guide dogs, five of them who were successful, one of whom guided me for 10 years to her dying day. They did not go through any kind of treat training, nor did I go through it with them. Uh, the last two dogs that I have attempted to to have did go through treat training. Um, I attempted to use it with them. They were not successful. Um, are you, is this program using treat training as a matter of course, or are you uh, doing some dogs with it and some dogs without it? 
So, Thank Joe, you. I'll let you info that one, and then we'll wrap up. Maybe I can have a quick clarification. Uh, I mentioned about an automated treat delivery system and et cetera. That was not for guide dogs. That was an earlier study uh, that we ran and explored uh, clicker training automation. Um, that was nothing to do. It was like much before our interaction with the uh, guide dog program. If this is a question related to that, you know, this is the explanation, but I think uh, Gerald can explain the uh, uh, treat training. Yeah, so uh, here at Guiding Eyes, um, we used to train traditionally with no food, but we have switched to treat training. We've had great success with it. Um, we don't wean our dogs fully off of treats. We teach our uh, graduates how to use food uh, with their dogs, and some continue to use food. Some only when they're on new routes. Um, but, the, the, yeah, I think what Alper said was where some of that confusion may have gotten, come in, but we do use food here at Guiding Eyes. Uh, we do teach everything uh, with positive reinforcement, um, and we do teach our graduates how to use food effectively. Um, if it, you know, there, there are ways to make sure that it's really effective in the training of the dog, and we have to, there's also sometimes where it can become a problem. So you have to kind of figure out where and why the food, if food work, training didn't work for you, what the reason was. Okay, thank you, Gerald. Unfortunately, it's 4.44 now. Um, we don't really have time for any more questions as we're getting to wrap up. I want to, on behalf of GDUI to the panelists, I want to thank all of you for the most of the audience, if not all of the audience, or actual guide dog users. And mm -hmm. we can't thank the, the uh, five of you enough for being on this panel and trying to improve guide dog matches because you give us our freedom, our mobility, and our independence. And that means everything to all of us. So thank you very much. And Maria, do you want to wrap up? Um, yes, I want to uh, agree with you, uh, Carol, and thank the uh, entire panel. This was fabulous. Uh, GTUI has two more presentations at convention, and they will be during um, the hybrid portion of the convention. One is Fairy Tales on Saturday the 2nd, and the other is our wrap-up on Wednesday the 6th. We'll have awards, we'll have the drawing of the for the plush dogs, and we'll have the blessing of the animals. And we hope everybody enjoys the entire convention, and I hope as much as I'm enjoying this, that I've enjoyed this uh, particular session. Thank you again.